Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and depression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Psalm 44. Has this ever been your testimony? Is it your testimony now? If you're honest, have you ever felt forgotten about? Why do you forget our affliction and depression? Or has God felt hidden from you? Why do you hide your face? Have you ever felt that God is asleep to your suffering? The psalmist says, awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? What about Psalm 88? Down in the middle of it. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. And darkness has become my only companion. Have you felt cast away? And do you know what the psalmist means when he says darkness has become my only companion? These are the sufferings of God's people. Written from exile, these psalms, these Prayers and many others are part and parcel of the identity of Israel and of God's people. So we need not then feel ashamed or embarrassed or pretend that this isn't part of our own existence when it's these psalms that we resonate with. We should rather take heart that we're not alone and that even when it's to the point when darkness seems to be our only companion. For the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at suffering, its narrative in Scripture, the pattern for the believer, its witness to the wider world, and its ultimate end, all four of which are going to come back to Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus, as the hymn says. And if you don't hear anything else I say, hear this. Go to Jesus. That could be the sermon every week. Name the problem. Go to Jesus. And I also hope you hear me when I say that, hopefully, I approach this subject with the utmost humility. Because compared to every single one of you all, my life has been relatively pain-free. 
When it comes to the testimony of personal suffering, I have only to listen and to learn. I cannot possibly comprehend the suffering that has been endured or that is being endured. So just know, I'm not coming to this because I think I have all the answers or I know what it's like. I don't, but I know who does. And it's him, Jesus, that have the privilege of preaching about. No one else in this world may understand what you've been through, what you're going through, but Jesus does and is with you every step of the way. And that's a refrain we will come back to over and over and over. But back to these psalms of lament and suffering. Uh, They're crucial because where they fall in the narrative of Scripture, I think they help serve two purposes for us. One, they're cathartic. And that when we read them, we can breathe a sigh of relief. Relief that even the worst of suffering finds voice in Scripture. It helps place us in the text when we can read this and go, yes, that's me. And we don't have to struggle to find words for our suffering as if they're foreign to the existence of Christian life. Here they are right here in the Bible. But it also helps inform our suffering because Scripture doesn't end here. It's not the end of the Bible at Psalm 88. And so it helps us track with the rest of the narrative. So we can enter the text at this point. Darkness has become my only companion. That's the darkest any psalm ever gets. We can enter the text at this point, but we must look out beyond the textual horizon to Isaiah, to the Gospels, to Paul's letters, and to Revelation to know where we're going. So one question to ask ourselves, if we're here, Placed in the suffering of Scripture looking onward, what is it that we see? How did Israel expect this suffering to be solved? Clearly, they knew suffering. They they give voice to it. It was epitomized in exile, ruled by foreign pagan nations, kicked out of their homeland. And these Psalms are just one small bit of Scripture that give voice to that suffering. There's many others. But what did they expect to happen? How did they think the story was going to end? Most importantly, what was God going to do about it? Which brings us to our text this evening. I was inspired by John's message a couple of weeks ago that we read two entire chapters of Scripture. So our text this evening, there's no way to capture this in some five verses. So our text this evening is beginning in Isaiah Chapter 52, uh, verse 7. And we will read all the way until 54, verse 3. Will you stand with me as we read? How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion, 
Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her and purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. 
This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The gravity and profundity of this passage is hard to match in all of Scripture. So what did they expect? Well, most importantly, that they would not forever remain in suffering. Here's Isaiah prophesying, and the best news he's got is that God was going to redeem, restore, and reign again. They would not be in exile forever. Time would be of peace, verse 7. It would be of comfort, good news of happiness, salvation. It says the watchmen will lift up their voices in songs of joy as they see the return of Lord to Zion. So what was Israel to do? Well, all of this chapter 54, sing, break forth into singing. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. You're going to spread abroad to the right and to the left. Not only is God going to come back to claim Israel, he's going to come back to claim the entire world to the ends of the earth. And how is this going to come about? And here is where we get to the mysterious, powerful, weighty, ever-loving, ever-faithful wisdom of God. Folly and scandal to the world, but power and righteousness from God. All of this, this singing, enlarging, it's all going to come about through the servant. He's the one announcing this good news. How beautiful are are the feet of those who bring good news. And how is he going to accomplish it? Through victory, right? Military triumph. That's how he'll do it. By booting out all who have opposed Israel and taking the throne by storm. Because that's how history works. When there's a revolution or an overthrow of government, if a king is going to reclaim his throne, that is always accompanied but with power and violence. So surely, when God comes to do it all again, that's how it's going to happen, right? No. Through suffering. That's how. Through a marred appearance beyond human semblance. Through no form, majesty, or beauty. Through rejection and being despised. Through the bearing of griefs and sorrows, none his own. Through wounds and stripes, and chastisement, through oppression and affliction, judgment and forsakenness, poured out, numbered with the transgressors, with the iniquity of all laid on him. That's how. And why? And we'll come back to that. But who is the servant? And here's an additional layer of mystery and complexity and power. Because we're quick to immediately jump to the obvious answer. Who's the servant? Jesus, done, moving on. And you'd be right, but it's more intriguing than that, if that sentence is possible to say. Initially in Isaiah 41, if we would have backed backed up, Israel is identified as the servant. So in chapter 41, Isaiah says, but you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. And then later on in that chapter, it says, it's God saying, you are my servant, Israel. So Israel then is identified as the servant who will carry out God's purposes for the blessing of the world. 
However, the greater context of Isaiah, take Isaiah as a whole, and it's about the judgment of Israel. And these prophecies were read in exile. So, that's a wrench, that's a, that's a wrench of the plan there. So, though Israel was identified as the servant, they have failed to fulfill that role under God and themselves have become like all the other nations that need to be restored. Now, that doesn't negate the continuity with Israel, but someone else who's the same yet different is going to have to sum up all of that identity and role of Israel and themselves. And rather than Israel serving God's purposes as the servant, the servant is going to have to serve God's purposes to Israel before he can go on to the next step. So in Isaiah 49, we're, almost, we're getting close to our own passage. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. So the servant is in continuity with Israel and has a mission to Israel to bring them back because they can't do it themselves. But then there's the next step, what Israel was supposed to do from the beginning. Because later on in that same chapter, Isaiah 49, famous passage, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So the servant in continuity with Israel has a mission to Israel and a mission to the nations, to the ends of the earth. But we're not done. The servant is also connected with God the Father. In chapter 42, this is, I, Yahweh, have put my spirit upon him. In chapter 43, in chapter 43, God speaking again, but talking about Israel, you have burdened me with your sins and you have wearied me with your iniquities. And if that sounds familiar to you, it's because those exact same terms are said of the servant in the passage that we just read. He shall bear their iniquities, yet he bore the sin of many. So the servant not only shares an identity with Israel, but shares an identity with God the Father himself. Why does any of that matter? Because it eliminates the overly simplistic notion when we read this, we go, oh yeah, that's just God taking his wrath out on Jesus. Well, if the servant is God, what does that say then? See, when we read those sentences, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, he has put him to grief. We have to reevaluate what that means. And we have to read that three-dimensionally and not two-dimensionally. We have to go further than that because Jesus, the servant, shares an identity with God. If God is taking anything out on anyone, he's taking it out on himself. Karl Barth said, but the deepest mystery of God is this, that God himself in the man Jesus does not avoid taking the place of sinful man and being that which man is, a rebel, and bearing the suffering of such a one to be himself the entire guilt and the entire reconciliation. That is what God has done in Jesus Christ. 
So this, is, this isn't an either or, either God did it or Jesus did it. Yes, Jesus has borne all of our suffering, all of the evil, all of the sin on himself. Yes, God has borne all of the suffering, all of the evil, all of the sin on himself. All of which brings us back to the very first question. What did Israel expect to be the solution to their suffering? God, period. We're outside the bounds of language when we talk about this, but they expected God in and the suffering servant. And we should notice what they didn't expect was a philosophical answer to the existential question of the the problem of evil. And that's so often how it's framed. There's this abstract problem of evil and what's expected to solve it is some sort of logical rationale about the origin of evil and how that doesn't infringe on the ultimate goodness of God. But all of that is done in a vacuum and has no context. And that sort of trajectory for solving evil is so unsatisfactory and a far cry from the glory of what Isaiah gives us. How does God plan to solve evil and suffering? Well, not by giving some philosophical logic to his people, but by taking all of it on himself completely and in his son Jesus and exhausting it of its power. So says N.T. Wright, speaking about this when it's manifested in the life of Jesus. He says, what the Gospels offer is not a philosophical explanation of evil, what it is or why it's there, nor a set of suggestions for how we might adjust our lifestyles so that evil will mysteriously disappear from the world, but the story of an event in which the living God deals with it. So in our own suffering, The temptation is always to try to figure it out. But to take that road of figuring it out or trying to figure out an answer is an altogether different road than Scripture. The road of suffering and its answer in Scripture leads to one person, Jesus. And we would be wise to do the same. Because zoom ahead to Matthew where these prophecies that Isaiah has talked about are finding fulfillment. And Matthew's, Matthew's look, and Matthew's, he's on it where all these fulfillments are happening. And I want to draw you to one specific image. It's in Matthew chapter 8. Fourteen through seventeen. Matthew 8, 14 through 17. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. And that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, this is a poignant image for a number of reasons. 
Because why isn't this fulfillment, when we read those two chapters in Isaiah, we immediately think, oh, that's, that's what Jesus did on the cross. And you'd be right. But yet, here in this picture is where Matthew says, there's Jesus fulfilling these Isianic prophecies. So Jesus just pictured this. Jesus comes into Peter's house, comes down. Peter's mother-in-law is lying sick, kneels down, holds her hand, heals her. And it's this moment that Matthew says, that's the suffering servant. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. And that's not the same as saying, oh, he just heals people. No, he took them and he bore them. Now sit with that for a moment. The mission of the suffering servant of Jesus, of God, is not just for spiritual forgiveness, though it most certainly is for that. The mission of the suffering servant of Jesus, of God, is for all suffering, for your suffering. No, this doesn't mean we can try to extrapolate some sort of formula to answer why some people are healed in the present or some are not. We can rest assured, though, that God is firmly committed to healing, be it on this side of eternity or the next. God doesn't have a problem of evil because there's going to come a day when there's no longer a problem. Nevertheless, in the meantime, what we are given is much more comforting than trying to figure out an answer. And what's much more comforting is the presence of Jesus. Not just as Lord, who rules over all, including suffering, though he is that. Not just as Savior, who saves us and heals us of our suffering, be it on this side of the Jordan or the next, though he is that. Not just as Lord and Savior, but as friend, who has entered into suffering for us and with us. As Matthew pointed out earlier in his gospel, you shall call him Emmanuel, God with us in the best of times and in the worst of times. He knows what it's like and he comes to us to comfort and heal no matter what that means. You don't have to worry about taking your suffering to Jesus. Because just like in that image, when he came to Peter, you don't have to worry about taking it to Jesus because Jesus comes to you. Takes it. Bears it. I'll tell you who understood this and captured this passage perfectly. His name was Joseph Scriven. And he was born in the early 1800s in Ireland. And in his mid-20s, mid-20s, he moved from his homeland of Ireland to Canada, 
mostly because he felt compelled by God to do so. So he thought he was doing the right thing. And once he was over there, he received word that his mother was dying. He knew there was no possible way for him to get back to Ireland before she died. And so all he could do was write her a letter. And he sent her a letter and a poem. And you just think of all the things he could have said to her. His first two lines in that poem were, What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs 